The sermon this morning will be from Jonah 3, and I will read that for us now. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so good to see you this morning. Uh, let me say in advance of uh, Thanksgiving on Thursday that I am thankful for you. So it's our practice in our family to always talk about the things that we're thankful for. And you can rest assured that on Thursday I will say that I am thankful for you. I was thinking about this just this past Sunday when I went to sleep last night after our members meeting for you, the members of Restoration Church. And the word that just kept coming to my mind was grateful, grateful, grateful. So I love you. I thank God for you. On behalf of all the elders, Restoration Church, we love you. What a joy it is to pastor you. There's nowhere else I'd rather be and uh, no place I'd rather preach God's word to. So, uh, and that's what we're going to do now. So let me pray for us as we jump in. Father, we do pray that you would open your word to our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see now, God, that repentance is not a rude intrusion, but a gracious invitation to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Help us to see that, God. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, in February of 2008, I went on my first foreign mission trip to northern India. We went over there to train some church planters and uh, spread the gospel there in that region. And uh, when we went over there, we were told that we were going to be dealing with people that were sort of pluralistic in their thinking which is to say that when we went out to share the gospel, there would be people that would just be apt to just add Jesus to the other gods that they worshipped. And so we needed to understand a few more things. In particular, we needed to understand this notion of repentance. We need to call for repentance, to turn away from serving false gods and to serve the one true God. And so you can imagine what our evident results were like when we went out and began to share the gospel with people in those communities. Uh, if we had not emphasized the need for repentance, we probably would have externally had a lot more evident fruit, at least on our own eyes, right? But in reality, the more that we called for repentance and called people to follow Jesus, we probably saw what was in happening in reality, right? And as I think about that event, I think about our own context, and I wonder, I ask the question to us today here living in Washington, D.C., is our context so different than northern India? Are we not also very pluralistic, just sort of adding gods, as it were? And we would never think of it maybe that explicitly, 
But it would be easy to, when we spread the gospel, to emphasize the benefits of Christ and yet not call people to repentance. See, it's easy just to add Jesus. It's another thing to die to self and live for the glory of God alone. And so I wonder what it is about this notion of repentance that's so offensive to us. What is it about this idea of repentance that bothers us, that we don't like? Uh, well, we see, uh, in particular, in the ministry of Christ, this, was a, this call to repentance was something that was common in Jesus in his preaching ministry. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, his first sort of call, his public cause, he begins to preach. He calls people to repent and to believe the gospel for the kingdom of God was at hand. And so... We know about John the baptizer calling, doing a baptism of repentance. But again, this notion of repentance, I think even when we read it in Scripture, it kind of bothers us in some way, doesn't it? We don't tend to like it. If I were to stand up here for the next, you know, hour and a half as I preach, setting your expectations high uh, or low. Um, <laughs> if I were to preach for a long time and I just railed at you guys to repent, to repent, to repent, to repent, you'd probably walk out of here and go self-righteous guy, judgmental guy, whatever. Um, so there's, there's something about this notion of repentance, though it is consistently biblical. And so my goal this morning is for us is very simple. I have a big goal. My goal is to help you see that repentance is a beautiful thing. To help you see that repentance is, as I just prayed, not a rude intrusion into our lives, but instead is a gracious invitation to the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what we're going to see today. So let me set the... The, uh, the story here, you heard uh, Owen read Jonah chapter 3. We've looked in the past two weeks on Jonah 1 and 2. Jonah, the book of Jonah is in the Old Testament. This is years, hundreds of years before Christ comes. What we've seen is that God sees the evilness, the evil ways of Nineveh, and God has then called Jonah to stand up and go speak against Nineveh, to call them against their evil ways. But as soon as Jonah gets this message, he doesn't like it and runs from the presence of the Lord. But God, being so gracious and merciful, chases after Jonah. He appoints a fish for Jonah. Uh, The fish swallows Jonah up and saves Jonah. Jonah responds by being thankful and saying that salvation belongs to the Lord. He then makes a vow that he's going to get it right. He's going to go preach uh, to the Ninevites. He's vomited out of a fish onto dry land. That's where we pick up our story here In chapter 3, verse 1. That's what we're going to see. So as we think about repentance, we first need to begin to think about uh, how repentance comes about. And so first point this morning for us, the word of the Lord is sufficient for repentance. That's what we see in this passage. The word of the Lord is sufficient for repentance. Look back there in chapter 1, verse 1 of Jonah. If you were to flip over your Bibles and see that, you'll see there it says, now the Note the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and it gives the word of the Lord. And now flip back over to Jonah chapter three, verse one, and we get it again. The word of the Lord came the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. So God's word, friends, is always true and it always gets its way because God is the highest and best of all things. God tracked down Jonah. He mercifully delivered him only to call him back to the very same thing that he called him to to begin with. God awful also always gets his way. Well, he should. He's good. He is sovereign. But note there in verse three, when he goes out in chapter three, verse three, note the language of the word there. He goes, verse three, in according to the word of the Lord. So here it is again. 
So before he fled, Jonah fled the presence of the Lord by disobeying the word of the Lord. Now, Jonah is obeying the word of the Lord by preaching the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. And so Jonah goes into that great city of Nineveh. And as he does, he preaches to them and he preaches eight words. Eight words. Quite a sermon, right? Yet 40 days, he says, look at verse four. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, it says. There's his sermon. Now, we are left with a lot of questions, aren't we? Did he say more than this? Well, if he did, what was it? What was it he said? If he didn't, uh, why don't we know more about that? Why? I'd like to know more. Uh, Now, we don't have answers to these questions. And here, I think we learn a good lesson about the sufficiency of God's word to us. That is to say this, that what is in the text is what God wants us to know. No more, no less. We don't need to look behind the text into t- history to try to figure out what might he may have said. We believe the Bible, right, is breathed out by God and useful re- re- for reproof, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the word we have here is what God wants us to know. Eight simple words. And so why is it? Why would God not have us to know more about this sermon if there were more? Why is it he just shows us eight simple words that brings Nineveh to repentance? Is it maybe indicating Jonah's reluctance? Maybe. Could be. But I think it's because God wants us to see the sufficiency of his word to bring about repentance. See, I can tell you guys this every time. Every time I preach, I pray, I think, I work over my sermon. Even the morning of this morning, this very morning, I'm printing out, re-changing things. I'm always working on it. Then I preach it. And then after I get done, I go home and I shouldn't have said this. I should have said that, whatever the case may be. And here's the thing, though. Here's the thing about all of that. I, I mean, I'm always sort of straining about whether or not I should preach this, preach that and all this. The one thing that allows me to sleep at night, one thing, because I'm always I'm the biggest critic of my own preaching. There's one thing that allows me to sleep at night, and that is this. Did I get God's word true? Did I speak it truthfully? Did I say the most important thing that he wanted to say? Did I, did I say what the text said? Well, then if I said that, I can sleep, right? Because God has spoken. And if I just speak that word, if I explain, if I call us to the thing that God wants us to be called to, then I can sleep because all the rest of it, I'm going to mess up. But if I spoke the words of God, I can sleep peacefully because God's word is sufficient to bring about repentance. In redemptive history, God has used donkeys. He's used bodiless fingers to communicate his word, right? He's used kings and fishermen, tax collectors and prophets. And so what we see in that is the power is not in the vessel. The power is in the word. It's in the word. So think of it this way. You think of, think of buying a Dodge Dart or a Ferrari, right? One's more expensive, one's shinier, one's nicer than the other, Right? But at the end of the day, they both have an engine and they both have seats and both can get you from point A to point B, right? Even though one might be shinier and better and more expensive than the other, the reality is both of them can do the same thing. And that is the same thing with the word of God. And so far as it's being spoken of, that's the most important thing because the word of God, as it is faithfully taught, faithfully called to, it is enough to bring about repentance. No matter if it's eight words or a hundred thousand words. So God, we see uses imperfect 
people. In particular, note in this passage, he uses an imperfect prophet's eight words in order to show us that the power that leads to repentance is not in the sufficiency of ourselves, but in the sufficiency of God and his words. Let us not forget, right? Genesis chapter one, God says, let there be an ant. And there was an ant, right? Let there be clouds, let there be sky, let there be a sun. And there was sun. Let us also remember Jesus, right? When he spoke two words to Lazarus, get up. And he got up. The power is in the words because they are of the Lord insofar as they are of the Lord. And so it's not in our ability to communicate, but in God's ability to resuscitate through the power of his word. And take a look at what happens there in verse five. As a result of those eight words, the words of God being spoken The Ninevites believe God. So God's word is sufficient for repentance. And so a couple brief applications for for us as we think about the sufficiency of God's word to bring about repentance. And I know what some of you are thinking about this point. Well, Nathan, if God can can be sufficient to bring about repentance in eight words, maybe your sermon should be shorter, right? Come on, we're all thinking it. Just say it, right? We just, let me go ahead and admit it out loud. All right? Trust me, nobody wrestles more over the length of my sermons than I do. You can ask Catherine about that. You can ask Joey about that. Every week I'm trying to, ah, up to 4,000 words, 5,000 words. But listen, if the sufficiency for repentance is found not in the speaker, but in the power of the word being faithfully taught, listen, show up every Sunday. Show up every Sunday. And don't just show up every Sunday. Show up every Sunday eager to hear the word of God. Come in here hungry. Come in here ready, expecting to hear the word of God because you know, at least at this church, we are going to faithfully try to deliver that meal to you every week. Show up every day when you open up your Bible. It's right there and read and be reminded of it. Show up in community group. Know that it's going to be faithfully taught and delivered to you. Know, expect it. Look for it. You know, think about it this way. If we found out that you know, Abraham Lincoln had resurrected from the dead. and He was going to be speaking at the White House tomorrow about the current state of American politics. We'd all show up and be hang on every word, wouldn't we? But this is the word of God. This is God himself speaking to us. Let us come here every week expecting to hear. Show up every day and read your Bible. Think about it. Talk about it. There's power in those words to bring us about to the ways of God. His glory. These are the decrees of a heavenly king. And so don't miss the gathering of the church. Come eager to hear the word of God and be encouraged. And don't focus on the ability of the preacher. Focus on the delivery of the word and be thankful for every morsel of it that gets to your mouths. But second application we see from the sufficiency of God's word to bring about repentance. Be encouraged that God can use imperfect prophets who speak just a handful of words to bring about repentance. So you don't need a master of divinity to effectively preach the gospel and see people respond. You don't need to be William Shakespeare in order to preach the gospel and see people respond. You just need to be faithful to God's word. Just be faithful to it and call yourself, call others to it. Place your confidence in God and in the word. Don't place your confidence in yourself and then just watch the Lord work. I think about this when I was growing up. My dad was a very good golfer. And we would go out and hit golf balls. And I remember 
Every time the lower the club would get, the lower the clubs, further the ball should go. And every, the lower the club would get, the harder I'd try to hit the ball, especially that five iron. I love the five iron. I'd just whack, you know, as hard as I could. And most of the time I'd shank it and hit it all over the place. And my dad would tell me all the time, over and over and over again, Nathan, let the club do the work. Don't try to muscle it. Let the club do the work. And so it is with us. Let the Word do the work. Don't try to muscle it up. Just trust the Word. Swing the Word. Let it do the work. Call people to the Word. And watch people come to life. God's Word can make an oak tree. And as I said, it can make an ant. It can bring a dead man to life. And so your words can't do any of those things. So trust the word of the Lord to bring about repentance. So that's the first thing we see from this passage. Just this wonderful eight-word sermon. Maybe some week I'll do that. Eight words and sit back down. The first thing we see there again is the sufficiency of God's word to bring about repentance. We see that in that eight-word sermon and their response in verse 5 to believe the Lord. But the second thing we see is in order to understand what repentance is. We need to understand what it is. We see that the word is sufficient to bring it about. Secondly, what is it? Well, repentance is life to God, death to self. Repentance is life to God, death to self. Or if you want to say it in a phrase, living to die or dying to live. Repentance is life to God, death to self. That describes what it looks like. So if we're going to be rehabilitated, To see repentance as a gracious invitation to joy, we need to see the two elements there that I just referenced in repentance. We've got to see them both. So the first is trusting God and not trusting ourselves to bring about repentance. All right, so let's take a look at that. First, trust in God or life to God. So Jonah preaches the word, and after he preaches the word, look at verse 5, you see it there, the Ninevites, they believed God. And so as we will see in a moment, before they had believed in themselves and their own interpretation of things. And so here we see that true repentance that leads to life and joy happens when we stop trusting ourselves and we start trusting God. So that's what that word, that's what those words believed God mean. So if if I had the opportunity to change any word in the Bible in terms of translation, it would be this one. God forbid that someone would ask me to do that, but I would. This would be the first one I would go to. Instead of the word believe there, I'd take out the word believe and I'd insert the word trust. And that gives you a better understanding of what's happening in believe. See, I think sometimes we hear the word believe, the word or believe the gospel, and we think it's sort of like the same thing as saying, do you believe in Antarctica? I've never been to Antarctica, but, you know, I see it on a globe there. I trust that it's true. So we kind of think that's what it means, that believe like that is mean, but it doesn't mean that. It means at least that. We have to believe in the facts of the gospel, that Christ lived, he died, he rose on the third day. Certainly, that's part of it. But listen, it's not enough to believe God in that way. You want to know why? Because the demons believe that. The demons believe in the facts of the gospel, the fact of who God is, what God has done. What they don't believe, what they don't do is they don't trust God for new life. And there's the difference. That's what it means to believe God, is to trust God for new life. Trust God alone for new new life. That's what believed God means. That's what's going on there in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. So let me give you another example. I don't just believe the fact that Andrea Vickery Knight is my wife. I don't just believe that that factually is true. It is true. But I trust her as my wife. Do you see the difference? 
trust her. When I'm with her or not with her, I trust that she's my wife and I enjoy that union. And that's what biblical belief is. These Ninevites trusted that God alone could save them and reorient their lives. And you can see that that's what these Ninevites believe when you notice that they're trusting God alone to mercifully save them by noticing, look there in the text, though these guys were pagan peoples, they don't try to do something in order to pacify God. They don't offer any sacrifices saying that, like, maybe if we do this, then God will like us. Now, they do put on sackcloth, and they fast, and they sit in ashes, but they're doing this to communicate, we can't do anything. We're going to have to trust you alone. And again, that's what it looks like to truly repent on the first half, is to trust God alone. What you're doing in true repentance is you're saying, I deserve this punishment. Uh, I can do nothing but get out. I can't do anything to get out of this punishment. So I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe God to be merciful and to deliver me from my justifiable punishment. That's what you're saying. Repentance understands that, and they trust God for mercy. That's part of it. You trust God to bring life. You live to God. You trust God for mercy. That's the first part of repentance. But the second part is you die to self. Trusting God alone for life and then dying to self. Now note there again in verse 5, the people of Nineveh, look at that language there, they call for a fast. They put on sackcloth, and I love this language, from the greatest of them to the least of them. You see that? Note how then true repentance levels everybody. Puts them on the same plane. Sees them for what they are. And note that even includes the king himself. Look at verse 6. You see the king sits in ashes. And so if you want to know if someone has truly repented, you'll see it in their willingness to take responsibility for that wrong and then humble themselves, to die to themselves. So if a man or a woman is unwilling to lose his or her position in the world, then they haven't really repented. If they want to try to hang on to some worldly benefit, some comfort, then they haven't really repented. Repentance, friends, is not merely regretting the consequences of sin. Repentance is regretting the sin itself. Very instructive for our cultural moment, isn't it? A lot of people wanting to sort of be sorry for what they did, but still try to hang on to their position. Unlike this king, it's willing to sit in ashes. True repentance is seen when people are willing to lose whatever place they have in the world, humble themselves because they understand who they are and what they deserve. And so from kings to cobblers, these Ninevites understand the evil that they have done and they all level themselves. They remove the benefits of their position. They give up tasting anything and drinking anything. See that there in verse 7? They give up all of those things. The calls to include their livestock in the fasting. A little strange, isn't it? Right? This is the equivalent of being, being willing to lose all that's in your bank account. That's what these things are. Their livestock was the equivalent of their finances and their food. And by their sort of including them in the fast, they were saying, by their not feeding them, what they're doing is they're saying, don't take any more ill-gotten gains and put them in our bank account. That's what they're saying when they include the livestock in there. They're saying, they're telling the bank, as it were, don't take any more ill-gotten gains and stick them in our deposit accounts. That's what they're saying. And they're strangely even putting sackcloth. Do you know that? Putting sackcloth on the animals, that is the same thing as sort of taking stacks of cash and writing on the side of that cash, ill-gotten gains. Don't touch. That's what they're saying when they include the livestock in their repentance. And so from cobblers to kings, 
They all do this. They call out to God. They humble themselves. They die to themselves. And then in that we see that repentance is total. It's total. Repentance results in a total change of direction away from evil and toward righteousness. So uh, it's easy to illustrate this, right? We think about what was happening is these Ninevites are walking towards their evil ways. God calls them. The word of the Lord comes to them. They believe it and they turn around and they walk towards God's ways, God and his ways. Right? That's what it is. That's what repentance is. It's a change of direction, walking towards evil, turning away from the evil, turning towards God. And that's what we see them doing. They humble themselves. They throw themselves on the mercy of God to cover them. And so dying to self, living to God in repentance means to agree with God's assessment of our evil ways, agree that we deserve the punishment. We take the responsibility for our sins by humbling ourselves. Then plead, we plead the mercy of God to save us, clear us of our punishment, and then reorient the direction of our lives back to God. That's what repentance is. And that's what Nineveh does. And that's what we must do if we are going to receive the life-giving joy of repentance. We die to self. That is, we turn away from evil ways. And we live to God, which means we turn towards God in His life-giving ways. And note, guys, there's no middle ground. There's no sort of way that like you walk this way and you're like, well, I don't really want to totally repent, but I'll sort of do this. You know, there's no way like that. There's no middle ground that we see in the text of Scripture. Uh, Repentance is a reorientation back to God totally. And that's what Nineveh does. We die to self. We live to God and it's total. There's no middle ground. We totally turn away from our selfish ways that breed death. We totally turn to Christ and his ways which bring life. This is what biblical repentance looks like. Total acceptance for our sin. Total turning away from that sin. Humility before God. Dependence on His mercy to save us and reorient us. Or, as Paul says, we remember back to our study from Philippians, right? I count what? All things as loss in order that I may gain Christ. That's true repentance. That's a life with God. And so, Restoration Church, are you willing to count all things as loss? in order to gain Christ and be found in Him? Are you willing to turn away from all of these things? The the Ninevites were. Are we? See, I think far too many people struggle in the Christian life because they want to try and keep one foot in both worlds. They kind of want to walk, like, like I said, sort of in two directions. Like, you know, if that's evil, that's God, they're sort of like, well, I don't really want to go I mean, totally over there. I'll sort of go somewhere in here, right? And yet God doesn't give us that option, does he? Either we are one direction or going the other direction. The cross of Christ breaks into those trying to sort of find a middle way, a third way, and says that it just doesn't exist. The cross of Christ says that you cannot have it both ways. Either you repent of your sin and turn away from it and turn towards God, Losing the entrapments, being willing to lose the entrapments that bring you comfort in life in order that you may gain joy in the next. Or you live your, your best life now and the everlasting punishment that you deserve comes on upon you. That's the only two options that Jesus gives us. We can think about Jesus' teaching, right? He says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and most will enter it. Narrow is the gate, he says, that leads to life, and only few will enter it. 
There is no middle ground. There is no third gate. We can't walk in two directions. Either we are alien sojourners in this world, fools for Christ's sake, turning from our sin, turning to Jesus to give us life, delightfully following him as Lord, repenting as we go, or we go on living in the way that gives us the most immediate benefit and yet long-term pain. Now, there are some of us, I'm afraid, that are trying really hard to try to live in those two worlds, trying to walk towards both gates at the same time, as if that could be done. And yet Jesus tells us, right, that a kingdom divided against itself, what? It cannot stand. Jesus promised us that the world hated him, and so it's going to hate us. So there's no use in trying to get the world to like us. doesn't mean we shouldn't be kind. Matter of fact, I would say we should be especially kind and compassionate. I think that's what we see here in Jonah. Yet we should not expect that the world will love us. Matter of fact, those that are trying to walk that middle road, listen to James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friend, turn away from evil. Turn away from sin. Turn to God. And find life. You don't need to put on sackcloth and ashes. You don't need to fast. You just need to own your sin. Recognize that it's true. And trust God to give you new life. Turning away from that trusting in Him to save you. Which leads us to the third and final thing. The thing that I mentioned is so important. This is the sort of the heart of the sermon where I'm trying to convince us by the Spirit of God to see repentance as a gracious invitation. So we've seen that the word of the Lord is sufficient to bring repentance. We've seen repentance is living to God, dying to self. And thirdly, we then see repentance receives the grace and mercy of God. Repentance receives the grace and mercy of God. Word comes, live to God, die to self. And then as we repent, grace, mercy, life come upon us. Take a look there at verse 10. Listen to the testimony of the God that is says there, when God saw what they did. I want you to note what comes next. Note how God gives a kind of clarifying note on what repentance is. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. So they did this, they were doing this, and then went like this. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Grace. Mercy. To Ninevites to Gentile peoples. Grace, mercy. That who knows, look there in verse 9, that who knows there uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, was not the equivalent of them sort of casually throwing a, you know, a penny into a wishing well saying, who knows, maybe we can, he'll help us out. It's not what's going on there. The who knows was their agreeing that they deserve the punishment and their uncertainty as to whether or not God was going to show them mercy. They knew they deserved it. But thankfully, God did relent. He did show them compassion. And we, are, we should be asking the question now, well, why? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 2, and there's your answer. Jonah saw that God showed compassion to the Ninevites. And look how he responds. And there we get his answer. I think we get our answer as to why God showed compassion to the Ninevites. Jonah says, now he's in his prejudice anger saying this. He knew this to be true. He said, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is what God is like. 
The whole reason Jonah ran was because he knew that his God would love his enemies. Show compassion to them, save them from disaster. And Jonah hated that thought. He did not want God to love his enemies. He wanted God to smoke his enemies. Because that's the way Jonah felt about them. But God does love his enemies. That's what he's like. He shows compassion to his enemies. And I want you to think about this compassion that he's showing. All right, just think about the people that he's showing this compassion to. These 120,000 Ninevites. Think about who these people are. Nineveh, friends, is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the same people that went and trashed the northern kingdom and tried to take the southern kingdom of Israel, of God's people. These are the people that God is showing compassion to. I mean, you couldn't have chosen a greater enemy. God sent a prophet to these people, the enemies of his people, to condemn them? No, to save them. Can you believe that? To be gracious to them, to be merciful to them, to show steadfast love to them, to relent from disaster that they deserve to receive. This is what God is like. He is so gracious, so kind. You couldn't imagine an enemy greater than the people of Nineveh, and yet God acted in history and preserved a word for us so that we would not be like Jonah and disdain God, but we would treasure God, that he's the kind of God that loves to show compassion to his enemies. This is what he's like. This is why this is here. As we would do that, as we would see that, that would give us courage, right, to then go to our neighbors and to the nations to spread the gospel to them, that they too might have compassion. God would have compassion on them, that they would believe that God's glory would shine there. That's why this here, the Ninevites, enemies of God and God's people, were shown compassion by God through their hearing of the word, by their turning from their evil ways and trusting God to save them. They did not trust themselves and their good works. They did not try to clean themselves up. No, they said, we agree, we have sinned. They humbled themselves before God. They turned from their evil ways and said, God of mercy, show us mercy. God shows them mercy and he saves them. This, beloved, is what God is like. This is what he is like. And if you're wondering if this salvation was real, that was a question that came to my mind. I was sort of like, I don't know. Like, did these guys persevere? Well, go back and look at that passage we've referenced all throughout this series, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus thankfully gives us his commentary on this exact passage. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says that these 120,000 Ninevites, on the day that Christ returns, are going to rise up to judge the same people that condemned Jesus to death. So what's Jesus' assessment of this event of salvation? True. Save. We will spend eternity with these people in heaven. Enjoying the grace of God. Won't it be a blast to talk to them? Right? Man, God is so good. Salvation is real. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, you know, well, Nathan, this is sort of a good story, but I don't think this kind of stuff happens anymore. Well, if that's you, let me give you one story from just this past year. True story of a man that lived in the Middle East. He loved the Lord. He was an evangelist. Man lived in the Middle East, from the Middle East, and he would spread the gospel to Syrian refugees that came across the border into where he lived. And he would share the gospel with them. Well, there was a man by the name of Fadi that got word of this. That there was this evangelist guy sharing the gospel with Sunni Muslims. And this guy named Fadi, his job was to recruit uh, fighters for ISIS. 
And he found out about this evangelist and he concluded that he was going to go and kill this evangelist. He's going to stand up, go find this evangelist and kill him. Well, this evangelist, this Christian that was spreading the gospel, he had a lot of fear, right? We tend to think these courageous people had no fear. I tell this to my kids all the time. Uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing even in light of the fear. And so Fadi, or sorry, not Fadi, the evangelist had just recently experienced the moment where the Lord strengthened his fate to stand in the face of difficulty. And as he did this, he looks out his window and who does he see coming down the road but Fadi, ready to kill him. What would the evangelist do? What would this Christian do? Well, the evangelist comes out of his home. This is great. I, I wish I could have been there to watch this. He comes out of his home, walks towards Fadi. Fadi's standing there ready to kill this guy, and the evangelist does the same thing Jonah does. He starts preaching the word of God to Fadi. Just starts giving, it, giving him the word. And by the great compassion of God, as the evangelist is speaking the word to Fadi, Fadi falls and begins to uncontrollably shake as the evangelist is just speaking the words of God to him. And as he's shaking, and eventually he says to the evangelist, I want salvation. And the evangelist says back to him, well, trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and he will receive you. And at that moment, Fadi, this Muslim man, then begins to weep. Can it be true? And he trusted Christ. Right there on the spot. The same man goes back to his wife, preaches the gospel to her. She believes. That same family now, you know what they do now? So then in December, this past December, Fadi and his wife were baptized in the church of that evangelist. And guess what Fadi and his wife do now? Now they live in that same refugee camp. Instead of calling people to be soldiers of ISIS, They're calling people to be soldiers of Christ. If it can happen to 120,000 Ninevites, if it can happen to Fadi and his wife, it can happen to you. You can know the grace and the mercy of God. The joy of repentance and of new life. And if you don't believe that story, let me give you another little piece of evidence. You want to know how I believe that God does save enemies? Because I was one. And he saved me. When I was 19 years old, filled with self-righteousness and pride, still sort of am, he saved me. He saved me. I was an enemy of God. I was running from his presence. And I would do it, by the way, oftentimes by coming to church. Going to Bible camps. Trusting in myself the whole time trying to walk those two different roads at the same time, which is impossible. And God showed me grace when I was 19 years old. And He saved me. He saved me. I was an enemy of God, running from His presence. And all those that are in Christ, it's the same story. We all were running from His presence. He didn't find us in sackcloth and ashes, but He found us in repentance, turning away from our sin, trusting in Christ. And that's what we did. This is why Jesus came. To relent from the disaster that was supposed to fall upon us. That's why He came. Christ came to remedy the world of its deepest problem. Sin. Sin. And Christ lived that sinless life that all of us should have lived. And so Christ the innocent went to the cross to make the payment for our sins. He took the punishment. He took the disaster that should have come upon us. He 
put it, God the Father put it on His Son on the cross. Absorbing that wrath, absorbing that punishment that should have come upon us. He's then buried, He dies, buried, and three days later we know that that happened. We know that God took all of His disaster and put it on His Son instead of on us because on the third day, what happened? He rose from the dead. Sacrifice received, payment clear. For those that repent and believe and trust in Christ, they get the new life of salvation. They get to be born again. And now the disaster that was supposed to fall upon us, it was not, it no longer falls upon us. Sin's penalty was nailed to the cross of Christ. Christ traded his righteousness for our guilt. And so for all who trust his finished work, we have the new life of his resurrection. And those of us who are in Christ and yet still struggle with sin, listen, we don't struggle from defeat. We struggle from victory to victory. We keep going, knowing that who Christ is is who we are. And He has secured a place for us. And He is preparing a place for us in heaven. And we'll get there soon enough. Even in all of our struggles, we keep our eyes on Jesus, trusting Him. We'll get there. In all of our sin and our shame. See, friends, what happened to those Ninevites is what happened to us, Restoration Church. That's what happened to us. That's what happened to us. And for you that are still stuck in sin, listen, God's anger can relent upon you as well. If you would but repent and believe, trust in Christ alone for your salvation, like those Ninevites, like me, like that, like your neighbor, maybe that is trusting Christ. That can happen to you. That can happen to you. If you would but repent and turn from sin, trust in Christ alone to save you. You don't have to say who knows like those Ninevites did. You can know that he will do it. And so you see, friends, Repentance is not a rude intrusion. It's a gracious call to the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what repentance is. But maybe some of you still don't believe me that repentance is this beautiful call of joy, to joy. Well, listen to the words of Christ Himself. One of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, Luke chapter 15. This is Jesus talking about repentance. And listen to what He says. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And listen to what Jesus says. He interprets the moment. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How about another one? He keeps going. Jesus loves to talk about the joy of repentance. Or what woman, Jesus says, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, this is what he did with you, Christian. But just, you listen to this. This is what he did for you. All right? God chasing after you. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, seeking diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then, by the way, y'all know what comes next? A little story by the the name of the the story of the prodigal son. 
Better to be called that the parable of two sons. But that's another story for another day. But nevertheless, in that story, we learn one comes back. One goes out into the pigsty, repents, comes home, and received home with joy in his repentance. And so, friends, I don't know where all of you are at right now. Some of you are following hard after Jesus, experiencing the joy of repentance. Others of you uh, uh, have sin in your life that you need to repent of, but you're scared to do it. Like these Ninevites, you know it's going to cost you a lot. Repentance is going to cost you time and money and comfort. It's going to cost you some position in the world. And you know that to turn away from evil is to expose your sin and bring you into uncomfortable places. And so you're scared. And listen, I get that. I get that. I understand that it will be hard. It was hard for the Ninevites. It'll be hard for you. It will be hard to expose sin. And you know that it will be hard to live in the consequences of sin. I get that. But listen, no matter what it is, no matter how ugly, how ugly, how awful it is, no matter how deep the wounds are, how painful obedience might be, you need to know, friend, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. There is more mercy in Christ than there is bitterness in you. There is more patience in Christ than there is anger in you. There is more steadfast love than there is hate in you. And so confess your sin. Turn from sin. Turn from bitterness and anger. Give it to Jesus. Trust him to take it. If you have sinned or been sinned against, whatever it is, the punishment for those things can be placed on the cross. There it is. It's taken away. It's punished there. Look for it to be punished there. That's sin. Look for it to be punished there. Trust Jesus to take all the guilt, all the shame, and then you receive grace, mercy, love, forgiveness. And in that, then, God then relates to you. He relents from his anger towards you. Christ said, right, it is what? Finished. It's done. Turn from sin. Trust Christ. Live in the freedom of forgiveness, rejoicing that you have been found. That's what God's saying, rejoicing that you have been found. I recognize that the implications of uh, repentance are messy. But listen, Christ invites the messy. He invites the messy. And not only that, not only does he invite the messy, messy, listen to this, he also says that he'll be with you through it all. He'll be with you. And then you know who else will be with you? God's people. God's people will walk through that act of repentance as well. You don't have to bear it on your own. Trusting Christ to take it and trusting Christ's people to walk with you through it. Trusting Christ will even be with you through it all. And Restoration Church family, I want to end by calling us to this as a people, as a church. Did you notice there, look in verse 5 again, did you notice there's a corporate aspect to this passage? There's a corporate aspect to the repentance. You see that there? It's the people of Nineveh that are repenting. And so I want to use the occasion of this passage here in Jonah to call us as the people of Restoration Church, I want to call us as a people to repentance. Now I would hope that we would always be repenting, but this passage gives us a special occasion to do so. So here's the thing, listen. Two weeks from today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Lord willing. Two weeks from today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if you know your brother has or sister has something against you, then go and reconcile with them and then come to the table, he says. So the Lord's Supper in that way is a table of reconciliation. It's a table of unity. And so like David, I encourage us as a people to be like David. Ask the Lord to search your heart. 
And as sin is exposed, ask the Lord for courage, for grace, for repentance, and walk it out. Do whatever is necessary for that repentance and be reconciled insofar as it depends upon you. And I know that, again, working out those implications of repentance, it may take longer than two weeks. But regardless, confess your sin to God, to one another, turn from it, turn to God, receive His grace, and hear the angels singing for joy in that repentance. Hear it and be glad. Live to God, die to self, and listen to the joy of repentance. And as we do all of this, don't forget that, that repentance is no rude intrusion into your life, but a gracious invitation to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Remember that as you walk out repentance. Repentance is a kind of cue to the angels. Let's sing. Sinner has repented. That's what it is. Go and be reconciled to God and to one another. And know, beloved, that in two weeks when we go to the table, we can go knowing that when we eat and we drink, we will do it as one people. Eating of the one bread and the drinking of the one cup. Believing, believing that that meal that we will eat together in two weeks, it's really who we are at the deepest level of ourselves. And by the way, you should know that that place at that table, there's places there for the lost. Those that have not yet called on Christ. So call them in your next two weeks. Call them to repent and believe that they might come and eat with us and enjoy the Savior forever and ever. Amen. So trust, brothers and sisters, in the sufficiency of God's word to bring about repentance. Repentance, we know, is living to God, dying to self, and life comes when we do this. Joy comes when we do this because we're walking back home to God where he receives us with glad-hearted joy. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we look at the Ninevites and we are mindful in some ways that it seems so distant. And yet in reality, what they did there was difficult, was hard. And yet you met them with grace for forgiveness. The angels sang on that day that those 120,000 Ninevites believed. They were reconciled to you and we will see them one day. And so, God, I pray that we would use the occasion of this passage, that you show compassion to the nations, to enemies, to know that you're no longer angry with us who are in Christ. You're not angry with us anymore. And from that forgiveness, may we forgive as we have been forgiven. May we be ministers of reconciliation, spreading the gospel and being united as one, eating and drinking together as one holding fast and waiting for the day when we will eat together forever and ever. God, give us courage for repentance and thank you for the grace of repentance. May we walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.